0: Three-dimensional, transforming, musical, linguistic objects.
1: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today I'm going to play a recording from a recent live salon when anthropologist and author Jeremy Narby was our guest. Now, many of our fellow saloners first learned of Jeremy's work with the publication uh, back in 1999 of his book, The Cosmic Serpent. And it was in that year that I first heard him speak at an ayahuasca conference. Uh, Jeremy has really deep roots in our community. Now, in today's program notes, I'll put links to his books and other online sites that are referenced to in this conversation. If this is the uh, first time you're listening to one of these live salon sessions, you'll hear that they're really kind of informal. I first began doing them in 2018, and when the pandemic began, I added a Thursday morning session to our regular Monday night time, so that uh, some of our friends in Europe could uh, join a little more easily. Originally, I was doing these live salons just, uh, just for my supporters on Patreon as a little extra thank you for keeping me out of poverty. Then, when the uh, pandemic came, well, some of my long-time supporters lost their jobs and had to drop off a of Patreon. So uh, I began, and will continue, posting the weekly links to both sessions on our Discord server as well. And if you aren't familiar with Discord, uh, not only is it free, you don't even have to give them your email address to sign up. Just go to psychedelicsalon.com, and at the top of the page is an invite to join us over there and connect with some of the others. And I also hope that you'll drop by for one of our live salons, even as a lurker, if you like. And at the end of this conversation with Jeremy, I'll be back to uh, let you know who our next guest will be in a live salon. Now, here's our conversation with Jeremy Narby in the Psychedelic Salon. Let, let me just interview, introduce Jeremy. I, I think probably everybody knows who Jeremy Narby is, but uh, I, 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 I was... Uh, at a conference uh and i see warren is here and warren was at the same one this is in uh late 99 and it was the as i understand it, it was the first ayahuasca conference in north america i think there'd been so many ketos or down there before and tony rich uh Promoted the thing, and, and just by a curious circumstance, I was uh, in his ayahuasca circle. and I'd only just, I was a newcomer, I just barely knew what was going on, I didn't know anybody. Uh, and, and this conference had, you know, a lot of really all the big names in ayahuasca, several shamans there. Uh, Ralph Metzner was, uh, I think, the MC. But the only talk I remember was Jeremy's. And, and, uh, the, the, uh, sort of synchronicity here is I have several friends who were at the 1983 psychedelic conference in Santa Barbara, where, uh, uh, uh Hoffman spoke Richard Evans, Schultes, uh, Shulgin's, and, uh, they had a one cancellation and they put a substitute in, uh, and it was Terrence McKenna. And the only thing anybody remembers anymore is Terrence McKenna. Well, the only thing I remember from the ayahuasca conference <laughs> this is Jeremy's talk. He was talking about his, his book at the time, The Cosmic Serpent. And here's what, what really captivated me about Jeremy is. Everybody else had gotten to psychedelics be- or gotten to the conference because they were into psychedelics first, and then they got into ayahuasca and the plants. Jeremy started the other way. He was a scientist, uh, 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 anthropologist. I let him tell about it, but he was the only one I could... Uh, quote and and cite to my friends who thought I was absolutely insane getting involved in in plant medicine and ayahuasca. And I'm just going to read one little sentence here from this book that the thing that really is something I don't think I, I should ever forget. And that is anthropologists invented the word shamanism. To classify the least comprehensible practices of quote primitive peoples, and and I think that's really important to realize that shamanism is to describe things that we really don't understand too well, uh, and, and and with that maybe Jeremy you can tell us how how you uh, how you first got the inkling to investigate what was going on when you were uh, working in Peru.
2: Well, um, thanks for all your kind words uh, and also for the uh, the question. Um, I started, I went down to Peru as a politically engaged anthropologist and I was concerned with the rights of indigenous people. I was critical of international development policies that would take lands away from indigenous Amazonian people saying that they didn't know how to use their resources rationally and then give it to individuals with a market mentality so that they could cut down the forest and establish cattle pastures. This was the, let's say, the official view of how to develop the third world and in particular, the Amazonian jungle, as it was called at the time. Um, And so there were some clear flaws with that whole approach. starting with the fact that Amazon, indigenous Amazonian people had a lot of knowledge about the rainforest and, and how to use it. And so that's what I wanted to study. I wanted to live with a group of indigenous Amazonian people right in the middle of the forest and s- do what anthropologists do. So you li- live with people, you hang out, you work with them when they work, you ask them a lot of stupid questions, you take notes when they're maybe not looking because it kind of, you know, makes it uh uh, taking notes in front of people kind of gets in the way because. Uh, so I, I tried to sort of practice a warm, human kind of what I thought was anthropology, out of political solidarity with these people. It was for me, it was a question of human rights that that they actually were bona fide human beings that had knowledge, and who, uh, yeah, the more I could show that they used their resources irrationally, the more I could argue that they deserved the right to own their lands. So you know, this was not mystical uh, by any means. The thing was that after spending a couple of weeks with these Ashaninka people, so these were barefoot Indians, the elder people didn't speak Spanish, I was speaking Spanish with the younger people, they knew all the plants in the forest around them, which was incredibly diverse, it's in fact the epicenter of world biodiversity, they ascribed uses to about half of them, and so they say so here's a plant that accelerates the healing of wounds i'd say okay well let's check it out i was into i wanted to study their knowledge about the forest so here's a medicinal plant the experts were flying over the forest saying this forest isn't used i was under the trees with the indians and they were saying yes we use this plant to accelerate the healing of wounds so that was part of what i was trying to show that that you could use the forest uh, productively, rationally, without cutting it down necessarily. Uh, But you needed knowledge to do that, and that knowledge needed, needed to be made explicit. So I started checking out their knowledge. You say this plant accelerates the healing of wounds. I have a wound. Let's try it. Only to find that it worked. And then I had chronic backache. The same thing I'd been to. Western doctors in London, and Switzerland, I tried cortisone injections, heat treatment. I would played too much tennis when I was young. Um, and these, as Shaninka said, look, we have a, a plant, you take its roots at the new moon, you drink half a cup of this stuff, you may feel cold for a few hours, you'll see a few visions, uh, you'll turn into rubber, and on the third day, you'll be healed. And I thought, well, look, you know, this couldn't be true. If it were really true that Amazonian people had a a cure for backache, science would know about it. Um, But still, I'm interested in checking it out. It couldn't be less efficacious than what the doctors had proposed. So I tried this sanango, chirik sanango, and it worked just as they said it would. Cold sweat for like eight hours, stumbling all over the place, no body coordination for 48 hours. And on the third day ta The deep tension and pain in my lower left back was gone and never returned. So this is what they call a medical anecdote. It has no value whatsoever medically. But as far as my investigation of Ashaninka resource use, it led me to the key question. I'm still trying to answer your question, but the key question was, okay, so you guys have real knowledge about all these plants. How do you know what you know about plants? And that's where the shamanism came hurtling into the room, because different people uh, would say, oh, well, we have ayahuasqueros, tabaqueros. They take ayahuasca, which is a hallucinogenic plant brew or heat tobacco concentrate, and communicate in their visions with the essences that are common to all life forms and that are sources of information. They were saying nature speaks to people in their visions and in their dreams. Um, at the time, the first time I heard this, I thought it was a joke. I thought they were, the guy was pulling my leg. But in fact, no, uh, different people would say this very matter-of-factly. And finally, one guy, I went to another village. In fact, the, the two neighboring villages squabbled over the anthropologist because, you know, you, you, entertainment was rare. There, you, you know. So uh, how come you have the monopoly of this guy? We want to have the anthropologist. So, okay, so I got sent over. 10 kilometers away to this other village, and after spending the first day working in the garden with some guys, I was hanging out with them, this is anthropology, drinking manioc beer with the guys, and I said, oh man, you guys have such knowledge about the plants, and we're in the garden today, and so how do you know what you know about plants? Brother Jeremy, if you want to know the answer to that question, you have to drink ayahuasca. It's the television of the forest you can you can see images and learn things and if you like I can show you sometime well um cut a long story short um I tried it and then the actually the experience was so extraordinary I certainly learned a lot of things um I think I learned just what I needed to know it's a, a I saw how small I was. I saw how human beings were part of a a wider fabric. Uh, The overall experience was like an antidote to the anthropocentricism of anthropology. There I was a human studying humans, and this plant brew showed me how small humans were and how similar we were to plants and animals. you know, like images of the veins of a human hand and the veins of a green leaf just going um so fast, so detailed, so clear. Um uh, clearly not things that I'd seen before. You know, the, the question was, what what is this? Well where is the, where is this coming from? And that, that was just a small example of so many other things that I saw that uh that night. Um So clearly, on the basis of my personal experience, this was like 1985, what these Ashaninka people were saying corresponded to something, not that it wasn't real, it was almost too real, too intense, uh, and certainly way off the radar of uh, academic anthropology or psychology or what have you, you know, because to consider that there's verifiable information in your hallucinations is the definition of psychosis. I mean, you, you have to be nuts to believe that, or rather, if you believe that, then by definition, you are nuts. Um, but that, that only made it more interesting. So here was something that, you know, I was studying their rational uses of the rainforest. They themselves said that at the heart of their knowledge of the rainforest, there was this irrational, shamanic, hallucinatory sphere. Uh, that contradicted the basic principles of my own system of knowledge. Um, You know, so the problem was not that there wasn't anything there. The problem was that there was too much there, much too much on the plate. Um, You know, I I then chickened out, turned my back on the whole thing, uh, uh, did not write about ayahuasca and tobacco uh, in my PhD dissertation for Stanford University on the Ashaninka's uses of the rainforest and became a doctor in anthropology. Um, And then I started working as an activist to raise funds for indigenous Amazonian people and found myself in like the early 1990s Giving talks, explaining that the only people who use the rainforest rationally are the indigenous people who live there and who don't destroy it. Uh, They use it for hunting, for fishing, for medicinal plants, for gathering uh, cosmetics, dyes, foods, uh, building materials. They build small gardens where they plant a big diversity of plants, and these gardens then get gobbled back up by the forest. The whole thing is sustainable and productive, and they're the only ones who know how to do it. So if you want to save the rainforest, the best way to do it is to entrust the, the, the lands to the indigenous inhabitants who live there. So that's what I was arguing. And after a few years arguing this, I realized that I was continuing to leave out the part about the hallucinatory origin of part of their ecological knowledge. And so it took about eight years between the time of having the initial ayahuasca experience and then getting to a place where I could no longer ignore that question. Um, And then, so I started writing the book, The Cosmic Serpent, to deal with that question. What does it mean when these people living in the most biodiverse place on Earth say that a good part of their knowledge about plants and animals and the forest comes from the visions of their shamans, so I think that might answer your question
1: uh, oh yeah it it does, and, and uh the the fact that it took you so long from Uh your first experience to to uh, kind of immerse yourself in it was that because of uh, what you were afraid your contemporaries and peers would say or why why did it take so long
2: Uh, you know I thought you were saying uh, it it took you so long to answer that question
3: (laughs) Um, (laughs) oh that was a great (laughs)
2: answer no but it's, it's a long answer because it's kind of a it's true it's a bit of a long story yeah uh back then I mean you know people tend to forget how things used to be so what is this thirty six years ago um thirty six years ago uh Carlos castaneda had been um disqualified from the profession um It's true that he seemed to use fiction, create amalgams of different people, that it was certainly not orthodox anthropology, it wouldn't have been even acceptable in journalism, you know, it was not, it seems, real reporting, you know, so that's deontologically problematic, etc. But then along came Michael Harner, who was an academic fellow, and uh, it became clear that once, uh, having done serious studies of Amazonian shamanism and other uh, Siberian shamanism, and and writing about it in Oxford University press publications and so forth, when he crossed the line and started beating on the drum himself and claiming that uh, he as an anthropologist could work as a shaman, he also got disqualified. And it it was pretty clear in the early 1980s that if you were a young anthropologist, taking the hallucinatory sphere of shamanism too seriously, you know, as as if there was something really there. That was, you were not going to get your PhD if you argued that. Um, you know, it wasn't written down anywhere. Um, but it was just like, you know, um, also, I'll tell you, it wasn't, uh, I remember coming back to Europe in uh, late 1986, and it's true, I- I'd been really struck by this whole uh, ayahuasca thing, and learning from a plant, and I tell my friends about it, and their eyes would glaze over. They didn't, you know, it wasn't polite conversation, talking about hallucinogens and, and vegetal hallucinogens that make you vomit uh, uh, fluorescent colors and see enormous serpents that explain things to you about how insignificant you are, and so forth. It's like, oof. Could we talk about something else, maybe? Or you know, it it, it was. It, I soon understood that even though I thought it was pretty fascinating, um, at the time it was just like not polite conversation, not welcome. It was, you know, people would would kind of look at at each other funny. It's like maybe he drank a little bit too much of that stuff, <laughs> you know. Um, and to the point that I thought, okay, look, uh I'm just gonna look into this by myself. Uh I'm live in a quiet place, I'll read the literature, I'll take it apart. And you know, I, I don't uh I was no longer in a university. I already had the PhD or like the driver's license, as it were. You know, so um so there it was. And the um the book um actually uh it, it was almost an argument with my father, which was, he was a materialist businessman. He didn't believe at all in any of this uh, gobbledygook. Um, He told me at the beginning that he said, I think ayahuasca is no different than milk. (laughs) Um, You know, so uh, I wrote a book to um, (laughs) convince him otherwise. So, and it was like, you know, uh, when I came upon the connection with DNA, for example, his first question, so we'd talk on the telephone. I'd say, oh, man, I found this thing. And what the shamans say about the invisible essences inside different living beings. In fact, there are all kinds of correspondences to DNA, which is this molecule inside each living cell, so forth. He said, what are the dimensions of the molecule? (laughs) Um, Good question. I'll look into that. I'll get back to you tomorrow. So I went and looked into it. Uh, the DNA inside any one of your cells is like 10 atoms wide and two meters long. This is like a billion times longer than its own width. It's like a little finger that stretches from London to Los Angeles. Uh, and if you took all the DNA threads out of a human body and lined them up, there's uh, it's long enough to go from su- the sun to Saturn and back 70 times. It's 2 billion kilometers of DNA inside your body. and So in other words, the numbers were mythological. Um, uh, The indigenous people said, yes, there's this stairway to heaven or axis mundi or twisted staircase thing that goes from the earth all the way up into the heavens. You know, well, uh, uh, that's just the reality of DNA molecules inside your own body, in fact. And so when my father would say, what are the dimensions of the molecule if i go and do my homework and then i'd shoot it back to him and say you know you wanted to know the dimensions well here they are and um and on and on so the book was kind of made to like you said that you felt that uh, it gave you material to convince your friends who were somewhat uh doubting of the whole thing i mean the the book was constructed to do that
1: and, and it worked perfectly for that because I, I have, an adv- have an advantage you didn't have talking to your dad. After I heard your talk, uh, the people I first approached were my friends who were very active uh, in the environmental uh, activism. And uh, your cachet of you were trying to preserve the rainforest from the bottom up, working with the indigenous people. And that so captivated their minds. Then I'd buy them a copy of your book and give it to them. And a uh, half a dozen of them are, are Practicing ayahuasca uh, retreats regularly now, so uh, your book did work that way it's unfortunate you didn't have it written to give to your dad <laughs> right from the beginning uh, because there's some some I- i'm so glad you brought this out about the indigenous people and and the plant medicine. I know we like to talk about ayahuasca and tobacco and the plants, and we 'll get to that but but the the knowledge of the people uh, uh, that's really what's so important and what i'm wondering is uh, since you recently were in Peru, how are the indigenous people dealing with
2: the pandemic? Well, you know, um, the, the thing that I heard over and over again from the uh, Amazonian people that I spoke with uh, recently in, um, in Loreto is that when the pandemic hit, they went into their communities, went into the forests, uh, into isolated houses. If they got the, uh, the illness, uh, they took a lot of plants uh Clavohuasca um, uh ginger lemon juice, and um they say that uh they had a low mortality rate compared to the rest of the of the country um, It's true also that the indigenous Amazonians have a uh complicated relationship with uh western medicine and not for no reason in other words. Um, historically, you know, doctors have come in and taken blood samples and gone away. And, you know, they, they've never really been in a big hurry to uh, look after indigenous Amazonian people. I mean, I've actually I took a, a, an Ashaninka into a hospital in Peru because he had a like a big wooden thorn stuck in his arm. And it was like under the skin. And you really had to go in there as a as a as a kind of a surgeon and get it out. And um, uh, the 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 medical Peruvian medical doctor. This is like 1985. He actually put his um, uh, 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 pincher in there to to start, and started sort of moving it around and say, "Well, well, you Indians, apparently you don't feel the pain, right?" And and you know this was a tough Ashaninka guy, and it's not in their culture. Too. They don't they don't even go out when they really do have pain. They they you know they they say nothing. And I mean, this medical doctor was like, torturing him for fun. And, you know, the the racism does strange things to people. You know, like you think, oh, well, this is not really a human being. And he doesn't really feel pain. So I'll just mess around with him a bit. He finally pulled out the wood. Thank you very much. But, you know, that's just how it's been for indigenous Amazonian people. So when the pandemic hit, of course, the last people to get vaccines were indigenous people in Peru, and the last people to want vaccines were indigenous people in Peru. So they had that kind of ambiguous position where they were saying, we are completely abandoned by the Ministry of Health, which was true. And at the same time, we're not so enthusiastic if they're going to come around and, and, and shoot us up with needles. So um, it's complicated um in a nutshell
1: and i believe the delta variant uh, is the one that uh, originated in Purdue, uh, peru so uh you know they they actually have some serious problems there
2: yeah but except it so i i i'm fresh back from iquitos i got back 6 days ago iquitos peru uh i spent uh, 10 days wandering around peru with a mask on even in iquitos which is a hot and sticky place and and actually Uh, People were telling me there's no more COVID here in uh, Iquitos. We're actually worried about dengue at this point. There's no more COVID because like over 70% of the population has had COVID. Uh, Peru had like the highest death rate in the world. Something like 0.7% of the population died. So they really got hit hard. And now they have really excellent numbers. So, you know, the last will be first and vice versa. Um, So Peru is actually doing pretty well. And the the government policy, uh, which is everybody wears a mask all the time, everywhere, and two masks in stores, airports, and airplanes, it seems also to work.
1: That's that's interesting that it does work isn't it <laughs> I have sort of been hogging the conversation I know Charles has some questions he wanted to ask so I'll let Charles here jump in for a, a bit. Well
0: I'm 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 happy I'm happy to listen to you both and you know Jeremy one of the ideas that uh that really struck out both in this book and the cosmic cosmic serpent is this notion of as you say opening up the validity of indigenous knowledge as a second way of knowing and as a complement to science and listening to your journey the, this thirty five year journey from being a young white vampire in the in, in the jungle uh, to being a uh, an ambassador who is bringing you know Raphael shanchari with you in in developing this book, the world has changed the receptivity towards these ideas have changed. so can you speak a little bit about the the shift in cultural attitudes uh, towards Uh, seeing the validity of indigenous knowledge in ways that we in the West or North can be sensitive to integrating and dialoguing with this knowledge.
2: Yeah, I think that in the last um, few decades, there's been a lot of Western people and including medical doctors, psychologists and others who have been able to test uh, the let's just say the Amazonian approach to medicine. You know, let's just take the simple question of purging. Um, Ayahuasca is known as la purga in the Peruvian Amazon. You know, most uh, Europeans and North Americans, kind of, they don't like to vomit. They don't like to talk about vomiting. Sometimes they don't even know how to vomit. You know, it's not polite conversation. Um, And it's certainly not part of the therapeutic arsenal of Western medicine. In fact, you know, now that Western medicine is studying ayahuasca, uh, they say uh, uh, the only adverse side effect of ayahuasca is vomiting. I mean, they consider medicine, Western medicine has a tendency to consider vomiting as a uh, adverse side effect. Um, Well, Uh, In the Amazon, uh, uh, purging is good. They like to clean out the tubes uh, occasionally. It's true, we're talking about a place where there's a lot of stomach parasites. But what has even been studied now is that you can take Westerners and and get them to do the purge with ayahuasca. And what people report, at least their subjective report, is that what they're purging out of their system is not just uh, physical toxins, but um uh, painful memories uh negative energies uh psychic garbage quote unquote um you know so that uh even though it's kind of off the radar of western medicine it's something that you can try empirically in other words it's it's not untestable um and it's it, so it's empirically testable by people, and I think that people have come to see that there is um, there is value in that. Like a, a, another one is uh, singing, you know, icaros. Um, it would have seemed like superstition that somehow melodies can impact. You know, one person sings a melody, and it can impact on the experience of another person uh, having taken a, a, a powerful hallucinogenic substance, but. Yes, it's this is uh, true, and you can uh, experience it. And Amazonian people have known it for a long time, and they practice it. They also think you have to prepare the body before this experience. All these things that used to be considered as like superstition by, let's just say, classical Western science. Um, it turns out that if you have the experience, you can see that there is uh, real underpinnings to this. So dieting before the experience, purging, uh, listening to certain kinds of music, all this is uh, central to the therapeutic experience of working with this medicine. Um, you know, So I think that's also why um, there has been a change. I think it's also true that there's a, enough people in the Western world asking themselves questions about Western medicine, Western lifestyles, you know, like, is materialism and shopping really going to sort of make us happy until we die? Or, you know, maybe there's uh, some other path. Um, So I I think the more people have come to question uh, things in Western culture, the more they've been willing to go towards a radically different culture and, and check it out. And, then,
0: and, one of, and, and one of the things that's very interesting about your approach to this too is that you're bringing a body of nuance into the discussion that you're describing. For instance, the Western culture idea about anthropomorphizing ayahuasca as grandmother, in in this book, uh, plant teachers, uh, as well as in in your interviews, uh, you're saying, "Well, not so fast." You know, the the indigenous tradition looks upon this in 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 a more mutable. Way in a, in a more fungible way, you know. Not so fast. This is a intervention that is practical as well as spiritual. So, I guess, can you speak a bit to some of the the the, the stereotypes or the biases that we in the West have placed upon ayahuasca in contrast to its indigenous use, and in ways we can perhaps have a more nuanced relationship with this uh, with this intervention?
2: Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the question. I'll try to. Keep the answer simple uh, but true. Um, I think really the heart of the problem is that uh, in Western cultures, and when we speak Western languages like uh, English, uh, we tend to have uh, dichotomous concepts that are impermeable. So, good and evil, uh, nature and culture, subject and object. These are all things body and mind. Uh, They are defined in opposition to each other, so that there can be no mind in the body and no body in the mind, etc. Nature is everything that culture is not, and vice versa. Um, In indigenous Amazonian concepts, anyway, it's it's a lot, it is more uh, nuanced. And there's always a little bit of dark in the white and a little bit of harming in the healing And it's a lot less absolute. Well, for a long time, Western culture looked at indigenous people and said, they don't have real knowledge. They don't have real religion. Um, In fact, they're just primitives. And um, that's about it. So in other words, they're close to nature. Nature is not so good. Indigenous people are not so good. And what is good is Western civilization and culture. Well, then we think it through and we see the contradictions. Now, the tendency, the Western tendency is then to reverse that and to put indigenous people and nature on a pedestal and say, ah, in fact, no, indigenous people, good, nature, good, uh, etc. But it's just, that's just the other side of the same coin of the same logic. Um, If what we did, instead of just turning things around, and turning instead of just turning our own logic around, we actually listened to uh, the people in question. Uh, we would see that they have a different kind of logic, um, and that it's that it's interesting. Um, and if you listen to them, they'll tell you, well, actually, first of all, that the whole idea of nature is a Western idea. The whole this thing that is opposed to culture, in other words, everything that is not human this is not an Amazonian concept. When you ask them about that, they say, look, we're telling you everything is human. Uh, Plants and animals, there are people like us, they're members of the same family, we're just not that different. We're we're all in this together. And the whole point of ayahuasca and these other plants is that we can communicate with them and listen to them and take their points of view into consideration. Um, So they don't make a distinction between nature and culture, between humans and other species. Um, some natural species are dangerous. Some can are generous and can uh, help you. Some can help you, but they can also harm you. In fact, these power plants or these plant teachers tend to be pretty ambiguous uh, entities. And that's also what the Amazonians will tell you. They say, these powerful plants, when you ingest them, they put you into contact with the invisible level of life, which is filled with these essences that are common to all life forms and that are fundamentally ambiguous. These entities that we can learn from and get information from, they can be used for healing or they can be used for harming. And there is just a fundamental ambiguity uh, in life itself and in how we can uh, approach it and it, it's important to take that into consideration. And so then here come the uh, gringos. And this time around, they're not missionaries. They're not oil company executives. They're not conquistadors. They want to take ayahuasca and, and have healing, except they're saying, ah, yes, it's all good. It's all about healing. and And they ignore the power part, the harming part, the sorcery part, the dark part, that for Amazonian people is just obvious. Um, so I think that in particular, it's not that I want to impose Amazonian logic on Western people. It's just that I think that when you have something like ayahuasca, which is a complicated, powerful, deep, uh, and you have people who have been using it for a long time and who have know-how about it, uh, and then on the other side, you have people who know relatively li- little about it, that those who know the the the, uh, the newcomers gain from listening to the people with experience, and and they'll tell you, look, it's not it's not all white, it's not a fairy tale, it's not only about healing, um, and uh, it's fairly ambiguous all the way down to the bank and back. Um,
0: and, and you and your and your co-author Raphael really do uh, drive that home. There's a great. Uh, passage that Raphael says in the plant in, in the uh, tobacco section, just as medicine is an activity and curing and healing bring satisfaction. For the plants, it is the same. Malice is an activity they carry out for their own satisfaction. Piercing the human body in a way that causes loss of life is an activity for them. And conversely, medicine is also an activity that we develop to heal, give life, to make life longer. And in your conversation with him, where you're really pushing back on him on a number of these concepts, you do make very clear that, you know, it's not all light, working crystals.
2: Yeah, And I think there's even more there. Uh, For example, in in different Amazonian languages, the word for medicine and the word for poison is the same word. Um, They don't make that uh, distinction. Um, In other words, the same thing can cure you or it can uh, harm you. Uh, This often depends on the dose, in fact. So, uh, and that concept, the the Greeks had that concept, the word pharmakon, which gave uh, pharmacology and pharmacy and so forth, is exactly that. A pharmakon is a a medicine slash poison. Um, So, and there we see once again, in Western concepts, medicine is one thing, poison is another. And that they can't overlap in our uh, intellectual categories. In Amazonian categories, it's the other way around. So when you go back and forth between a scientific Western way of knowing and looking at the world and an Amazonian way of looking at the world, actually, the same words don't necessarily mean the same thing in one system of knowledge or the other. That doesn't mean that we can't talk about it. It just means that we've got to be nimble, take it into consideration and, you know, cognize the complexity
0: Right. So I have two. I want to open up to our uh, our audience, but I have two questions uh, that are practical about ayahuasca that I'd like to ask first. Um, one is that as the the culture that is producing ayahuasca that you're studying is not a monoculture, ayahuasca itself is not a monoculture. There's many different varieties of, of ayahuasca, and in fact, one of the uh, pieces of research that you cited in the book is on average 54% more DMT is found in brews from neo shamanic facilitators than from those of indigenous Amazonian shamans. So for those that are listening to this and perhaps new to ayahuasca or aspiring to work with ayahuasca, can you speak to the nuance uh, chemically and the different types of ayahuasca that that are there that influence how the experience occurs?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, once again, it's a good question and it's going to take a complicated answer, but uh, I'll give it a shot. Um, this is also... Uh, something that uh Western knowledge brings to the table I, almost surreptitiously because it's a it's a a presupposition um, science wants to know what the active ingredient is and um it wants to sort of isolate it because once you have the molecule then uh you 're in business and, and i mean that literally also you can you know patent it turn it into a a pill or something, and and then and voila, you know. And so they did that with uh, with, with curare, for example, um, and invented uh, muscle para- paralyzing substances, tubocurarine, in the nineteen forties. And um, so the question was with ayahuasca: um, so what is the active principle? And um, so they looked into this, and uh, in the early nineteen seventies. Swiss chemist and a a Swedish chemist um, found DMT in some ayahuasca brews that they sampled. And so they posited that this might be the the active ingredient because it was already a a powerful and known hallucinogen. Um, They also found, but the DMT actually wasn't contained in the vine called ayahuasca, it was contained in the bush called chacruna or psychotria viridis. well, the vine contained uh, uh, other alkaloids, uh, beta-carbolines, uh, harmine, harmaline, tetrahydroharmine, but they didn't seem to be, and these were uh, vaguely hallucinogenic, but they didn't seem to be present in the brews that were sampled in large enough uh, quantities to actually bring about psychoactivity. So it seemed, everything seemed to be indicating that it was DMT was the active ingredient. Well, wait a second, first of all, it means that the Indians were wrong. They're saying the key ingredient in ayahuasca is the vine. And the scientists were saying, no, no, the key ingredient is contained in the bush that is sometimes in the leaves of the bush that is sometimes added to it. And you know, the Indians are wrong because they just don't have electron microscopes. And then, uh, in the early 1980s, um, uh, Dennis McKenna and his colleagues, um, they put it together. They said, look, these betacarbolines that are in the vine, what they actually do uh, is they are, they are MAO inhibitors that stop the DMT from getting dissolved in the stomach. DMT is normally not orally active. Here we have the solution which is, yes, it is DMT that is the active ingredient, and the uh, molecules in the vine are simply there to protect that molecule from stomach enzymes, and this allows the DMT to get into the blood and then to go into the brain. And so the this is a very elegant explanation. The fit, molecular fit, is perfect, and voila, and this became the orthodoxy, um, except that there were... All kinds of ayahuasca brews that did not contain DMT. Uh, they were also visionary, uh, more subtly, less spectacular images, but still lots of ideas and uh, points of view that come across with simply vine only. Then, so the vine itself: uh, harmine, harmaline, tetrahydroharmine, and together, not isolated working with their entourage effect, you can try a pure vine extract. You can read what Evans Schultes wrote about it or Wade Davis. People have have had pure vine extracts and described their visions. They're less spectacular than the DMT brews, but uh, still. So just the vine is already a complex cocktail. And then it's made or it's used by Amazonian people to reveal the properties of other plants so that by definition, you can add whatever plant you want to it. So if you add tobacco, the brew will also contain nicotine. Uh, If you add uh, datura, it'll contain scopolamine um, and so on. So actually, uh, ayahuasca means cocktail, there is no standard cocktail by definition. What cocktail is, it's it's a mix. It's it's made to have stuff mixed into it. Sometimes it contains DMT. Um, well, the Westerners kind of fell in love with the DMT explanation. They kind of thought that, so this is real ayahuasca. Real ayahuasca is when you activate DMT from the bush with the carbolines from the vine and then you have this spectacular uh, visual, visual experience. This is ayahuasca. Um, and then so Westerners have come to expect that to be ayahuasca. They kind of ask for it. When you give them more subtle brews that have less DMT in it, they're saying, ha, this isn't strong. I'm not getting my money's worth. So yes, eventually this has led to a situation where in places where there will be Western clients, people make sure that there's enough uh Chakruna in the brew and enough DMT in the brew. And so this has even been studied. You take samples from indigenous people or samples from where they attend to Western people, and you find a lot more DMT in the ayahuasca prepared for Western people. Then you get, I find it really problematic. So I'm happy that science is now finally studying ayahuasca seriously. But when you read in uh, peer-reviewed papers, uh, studies of ayahuasca that state that they're working with a standardized ayahuasca, meaning to say precise proportions of vine and chacruna, um, you know, and that the only uh, adverse effects are vomiting. Um, they're, they're getting uh, carried away by their own categories, and they're certainly not paying attention to, I don't know, the data and local expertise. I mean, any indigenous Amazonian uh, expert uh, will tell you that uh, you can mix different plants in there, that it can be the vine itself, uh, that purging is an important part of it and so on. Um, you know, So yes, there is a new kind of science that is waiting to happen where uh, our scientific experts with, with their uh, brain imaging machines on the one hand and the Amazonian experts on the other sit down and and design research together where they and take into consideration uh, the, the both systems of knowledge.
0: Thank you. Uh, why don't we make some room for uh, anybody that has questions uh, out there on the Zoom? Anybody want to either raise your hand or jump in with the question? Yeah, Justin, go ahead.
4: Yeah, um, I, there's a lot of things I could probably ask here. Um, but um I, I am noticing that you're know, starting to see especially with the psychedelic industry how we have such a thing here in the West, you know that there are people being pulled in to um to 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 consult you know like on advisory boards that sort of thing i don 't know if that's happened with you yet um, jeremy but if if so, I mean you know what sort of like what sort of like um company would you probably Considering your own experience, what would have to be a part of like, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the business plan, if you will, the the general, um, uh, the general goals that you'd want to align yourself with, you know, where do you, would, would you like to see this go? And what would you want to see happen as this starts to become more thoroughly um, uh, enmeshed in our own, um, uh, our, our own sort of version of civilization? Here?
0: Thanks for the yeah. question, Justin
2: yeah um that's a that's a good question and a a tough one um you know i I don't want to kind of speak out against um private companies or or anything at the same time there's something about ayahuasca that makes it a little bit different from other things in other words it's it's a plant um it grows fairly uh easily i'm talking about the vine itself it does seem to have a lot of uh health enhancing properties um you know for the immune system and uh, and so on and, and also for the brain it seems to uh, uh help new neurons uh, be generated um it's something that i think would gain from being widely av- available and not necessarily at, at v- a very high price in other words i'm not sure that the uh just the market is the the best mechanism and i think that indigenous amazonian people you know before wanting to have millions or billions of dollars rain down on them from i don't know a patent that might be granted to them for ayahuasca which is actually pretty unlikely but let's just say um i think that they, what they would like is to be taken into consideration. Um, they, you know, are not just consulted on a sort of a board or something, but really be listened to. Um, they could be made responsible for cultivating the plant and for uh, making and, and doing it differently. Instead of Instead of putting it into an active ingredient, make a sort of a complex plant extract that they're not easy to standardize. They are pretty variable. But still, um, making uh, different um, therapeutic products that would be good for human health, that wouldn't cost too much, and that would uh, recognize where they um, come from and and who has the the expertise. So it would take a lot of uh, maybe a new kind of company or a consortium of companies, or maybe this should... Go through university. I, I'm I'm not sure. You know, I, I I know that there are university-based people in Brazil and in Czech Republic, for example. They're working right now with uh, indigenous people in Brazil to do uh, basic scientific research on the brain on ayahuasca. Now and in a context where it is also being researched as an important antidepressant, and where it seems to have Remarkable results on depression. In other words, people with chronic depression uh, take one dose of ayahuasca and experience uh, a considerable improvement for six to eight months. And, and this leaves antidepressant medication in, in the dust, really. Um, and this is a, a, a several billion dollar a year market. So, you know, there, there's actual serious research going on right now. Um, whether it should be anything other than ayahuasca itself, in other words, the plant brew prepared by people who know how to prepare it, um, I'm not sure. I think that uh, companies, once again, prefer to have active ingredients that they can patent. So, you know, uh, I think that approach uh, needs to be... uh, It's probably not the company that's the problem. It's just that how these companies tend to work. so if you have people with Western know-how and capital that are willing to go and spend time sitting around tables and, and talking with different indigenous people about how to go about doing this in a way that is fair and just and ecologically responsible and humane and, and setting the right price for the medicine. And also ayahuasca is not just this thing that you give to people like uh, carrot juice, it needs to be administered by people who, who know how to do it. So, you know, then there's a whole kind of service that goes with the, the 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 substance. Setting this up is going to be complicated, but that doesn't mean that it's uh it's impossible. But uh I think we're only just at the beginning of a process, and it's probably important not to rush down the avenues we've already rushed down before uh in similar cases.
3: Thank you. Uh, Rio, are you going? Yeah, go ahead, Rio. Um yeah hi, Jeremy. I made two questions uh kind of related to each other when I was doing my first work in the amazon nineteen eighty uh and eighty two one of the things that we learned and we went there looking for uh to work because of the extinction of plant species um a big thing of course that pra and Schultz were behind. Uh, but what we found was that actually one of the biggest losses was when a shaman died, that a whole lifetime of knowledge disappeared with him or her. And the question that in thinking about it just right now, I thought could relate because you've been down there, is that that at the Girona Conference, uh, the third international ayahuasca conference in Girona, um, 2019 now, um, There was a group of uh, indigenous people there, very well represented, and one of the things that was happening was the killing of shaman, and uh, really the destruction of these peoples beyond even the ecology. So I'm wondering in that context, uh, if you could talk a bit about what is going on now, and what is happening with that knowledge, because obviously there's a lot of focus on ayahuasca, but there's a whole range of medicinal plants that are known in the Amazon and maybe don't get as much uh, interest, but uh, you can speak.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for these questions. Um, I think... uh, I, I was talking with Luis Eduardo Luna, who was the really the first anthropologist to uh, emphasize the importance of uh, following the diet and, and so forth in his Vegetalismo uh, uh, book in 1986, um, and he was saying because he was there maybe uh, doing his field work uh, four or five years before I was, so in the late 70s, uh, in a nearby area and he noticed, just like I did when I got there, that um, the knowledge about ayahuasca and these other uh, teacher plants and medicinal plants was uh, really waning. And um, people didn't want to talk about it to outsiders. The young people weren't really that interested in it, with a few exceptions. And it seemed uh, Luis Eduardo Luna thought that the, his four old informants were like the the last dinosaurs, and once they disappeared that it was going to be gone so he he was studying uh it, it almost with that in mind, so that if if they disappeared that there would uh, something would remain well uh fast forward twenty years, and the place is crawling with um People from all kinds of countries that have come to become apprentices of the of the the, the people who have expertise to follow diets, and it's uh, oddly uh, the 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 large great majority of the apprentices are uh, non Amazonian. There really has been a a huge internationalization uh, in terms of who is studying with ayahuasca uh, uh, masters and. And this interest, like the, this uh, strong interest by uh, hundreds or even thousands of, of Westerners willing to go down there and, and suffer and diet and and learn and vomit and, and so forth. Um, uh, well, this is not only a good source of income, it also puts a value on the knowledge in terms of the young indigenous people are saying, look, if these gringos are coming and they're interested in it, there, there must be something there, um, You know, it, it's something that's also a, a kind of a strange inheritance of colonialism, which is, that, for example, in Peru, which is a country of enormous natural beauty and, and resources. It took international tourists coming and saying, wow, the Amazon is beautiful, it has lots of plants, and this is important for the Peruvians themselves, I'm talking about people in the big cities, to start valuing it. And only, you know, uh, 30 years ago, Peruvians in Lima dreamed of going on vacation to Miami. Now they go on vacation to the Peruvian Amazon and they go to the eco-lodge. In other words, you know, uh, it, it, the somehow uh, the Western world has had a tendency to set the tone. And in this case, it's been useful to ayahuasca shamanism and let's just say this indigenous systems of knowledge because... It it has put a value on it. Um, You know, so people criticize ayahuasca tourism, but uh, still, I think that there is um, something there that um, has been quite uh, valid. There was another part to your question, but it's uh, escaped me. This,
0: this segs into, there's a question in the chat, um, that I'd like to get to, and, and we can okay. come back, uh, in a bit, uh, Ria. I just want to make sure everybody gets time while Jeremy's here. Sure. Uh, Melissa it wants to know about, um, how the impacts of Western intervention are, uh, are currently situated. Are you, are you seeing any mitigation of the adverse effects of Western intervention in the region? Um, or is it just same as it ever was?
2: By Western intervention, you're talking about oil companies? You're talking about
0: oil oil companies, impacts of visiting, destructive uh, influences of Western intervention, yeah.
2: Well, you know, uh, Western, let's just say, look at uh, the illegal gold extractors in the Peruvian Amazon and in the Brazilian Amazon. Most of them are not uh, Western in the sense that you're uh, thinking, you know, I mean, these are tend to be poor landless people from the country itself you know they're they're maybe not indigenous to the amazonian part of the country but they they go in there and they they weren't born there they don't know the particular river but here there they are and they're sifting it and they're putting mercury in there and you know and they're, they're just trying to earn a buck and 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 survive and that's the 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 best way that They know how to go about it, and there are no big obstacles on them doing this. And so it continues. Well, that's gold extraction, and it really does hit certain regions very hard indeed. Um, Then there's the oil companies. Well, some of them are Argentinian. Some of them are run by the Peruvian government. Some of them are are Canadian. Um, None of them are particularly uh, admirable. And the further away you get from uh, uh, the gaze of the uh, international world, the more the old oleoducts are leaking. And they're, you know, they leak once, they leak twice, they leak a thousand times. You have areas where there's just permanent input of uh, oil into the ecosystem. You have some of the most contaminated, the, the, the uh, Achuar people on the Corrientes River, live probably further away from the industrial world than anybody on earth, but they have the highest levels of heavy metal uh, in their blood because the oil companies that have been operating there have been pouring back uh, formation waters. Formation waters, when you, when you pull oil out from the subsoil of a rainforest for every gallon of oil, you get nine gallons of water contaminated with hydrocarbons and heavy metals. And so they were uh, extracting like 200 million liters of uh, formation waters every day and just throwing them into the river for 35 years. It's like a million bathtubs every day poured into one river. Well, the people who live there, and, uh, and meanwhile, the money that comes out of the soil, the oil becomes money, it's like half the wealth of Peru. None of it stays there. There's not even a health post. They they don't have aspirin. There's no doctor, no schools, no nothing. These are just Indians living out in the middle of nowhere. All they can do is fish and hunt, except all the fish and all the game are are completely contaminated. And they themselves are contaminated. Um, You know, this is just like an ongoing scandal. It's been it's been an ongoing scandal since uh, 2007. The government said they tried to do something about it. I mean, you know, indigenous Amazonian people are always on the front line protesting, often against oil companies and against mining companies, some of which are Western, others of which aren't. It's, you know, extractive industries. I mean, they could be Chinese. They could come from the east, the west, the north, of the, of the, or the south. I mean, Argentina is uh, in the south. Uh, But it's still extracting, its companies are still extracting oil. And not in a particularly, it's actually pretty difficult to extract oil out from under a rainforest and do it in a clean way. Uh, And it would certainly cost a lot more than it does. So, you know, why hasn't it changed? Uh, Follow the money.
0: So this, uh, there were a couple of other questions, but Jeremy, a time check, how are you on your time? Do you need to be wrapping up or can you stay for a couple more questions?
2: Yeah, okay, let's do two questions.
0: Okay, I saw uh, Chris and Ian both had their hands up. Did you withdraw or do you still want to ask? First one to unmute gets it. Go ahead, Chris.
5: My my question just mostly related to, as you, you were talking about people from all around the world coming in and try, you know, trying to, learn this knowledge but also that the the old shamans had said this is a tool that can be used for good or for ill and they were reluctant to share it with outsiders i'm wondering if there's some 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 issue with with people with with false shamans and 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 also i'm also trying to run that past my my american western filter of am i being too judgmental and trying to have there be some true religion and some you know definite lineage that that needs to be verified in order let, to let, 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 let's narrow valid. it down let's narrow it down to a question chris well it is there in fact a true lineage that needs to be followed to be valid or is there or or is i understand it's a it's a set of tools so is there a a bad way of doing it or is any spread of this information a positive thing thank you
2: yeah um once again um, uh, a complicated one i'll, I'll give a, a, a brief uh, intro um let's see um i think that um um Around the time that I published The Cosmic Serpent, which was 95 in French and 98 in English, I actually had it translated into Spanish before it came out in English so that people in Peru could read it, and in particular, indigenous Amazonian people. And I was kind of worried uh, that they might think, who is this uh, white boy coming in here, taking our shamanic knowledge and lining it up against molecular biology, whereas we didn't ask him to do this? And imposing this kind of uh you know new way of reading our knowledge, I was afraid that because the when i ten years previously when I'd been living with people, they were kind of reluctant to talk about it that much. Um, well, I took the risk, uh, wrote the book, had it published, sent it down to Peru and to my uh, pleasure and surprise, um, they all seemed to like it, and they all seemed to like it because they said uh, They felt that taken seriously by saying, look, this Amazonian knowledge is on the same footing as molecular biology, except we just don't realize it." they felt, ah, yes, at last we're being taken seriously. And also, I think at that point, and several people told me as much, they realized that getting uh, recognition of their territories, which was one of the things I was helping them with, was important, but they also needed recognition of their systems of knowledge. And that if the broader world didn't recognize that their knowledge had validity, then they weren't going to survive. And this is a realization that they came to. They realized the importance of territory in, let's say, the 70s and the 80s, and the importance of getting a recognition of their knowledge, perhaps a little bit later in the 90s. And so that's, I think, uh, uh, an important switch everybody knows that shamans are ambiguous and that they they the same shaman can start off on the right path and then get taken up by power games. So nobody is like pure. And the more you think one shaman is above it all, actually, the more that shaman is going to have the temptation to abuse power. So people down there know about that, that fundamental ambiguity. So there can be... Uh, people who start off on the right track and who end up being nasty sorcerers um or, or worse yet uh, charlatans uh i think also that people believe it's kind of like you know with, with your the guy who repairs your car i mean it, people who do a good job clients are going to come back and if they do a lousy job you know they're not going to have too much work um so uh, they're not all that obsessed with, like, quality control. Anybody can say, I'm a shaman, here's some ayahuasca, and then they start singing. And, you know, if it's good, people will go back. And if it's bad, they'll say, the guy's an idiot. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, I I think it's, there, there's not a big movement, and this is perhaps a weak spot of uh, at least Peruvian ayahuasca shamanism, is that. Not only is it hard to standardize, it's it's hard to get two ayahuasqueros to agree about about much. You know, they tend to they tend to uh, have power struggles between them. Um, you know, they don't have a sort of a corporation where they say, "Our uh, we need to uh, uh, define some standards here." In in Colombia, uh, they've done that, but in the Peruvian Amazon. Um, I, I say getting uh, Peruvian ayahuasqueros to agree would be like herding cats. So, um, you know, there too, it's a, uh, it can be complicated.
0: Ian, can you make your question very brief? I don't know, Charles.
6: Let's see. Um, <laughs> I'm going to cut you off after two sentences. <laughs> um, first, first, I wanted to uh, thank you for being here, Jeremy. It's been a, a really informative talk. Uh, I would, I would say that, um, the reason that the Westerners we, we've heard that that uh, ayahuasca is the television of the jungle, and we want the DMT because we want high death. Um, my question is that in the same way, the cultural context of of the the of of plant medicine and shamans and in, in various uh, indigenous indigenous shamans, we don't understand that that cult, the cultural context in which ayahuasca is taken is it true that in this is it similar that they don't understand the context from which westerners or people from other parts of the world are coming from so they say here is the knowledge we wish to share and be taken seriously and they end up pouring that knowledge into leaky vessels who then run back to their various communities and go i found the answer to capitalism but by the time they get there it's all leaked it's leaked away and it's and, and so people get an idea of oh it makes you crazy or it makes you messianic or and that's where the sort of the bad press
2: comes. Yeah, that's a an interesting um hypothesis almost. Um the, the leaky uh, Westerner hypothesis. Um I'd invite you to uh as a kind of a short uh answer, even though it's not it's more like a, a comment on your comment. Um there's a book called The Falling Sky that was written by Davi Kopenawa, who was a Yanomami shaman. And Bruce Albert, who is a French anthropologist, uh, who was his scribe, as it were. And he has a chapter in that book called um, um, Merchandise Love. And in which he describes, he's tra- Davi uh, Kopenawa has traveled to Europe and North America several times. And he describes white people from his point of view. And he says, uh, these are people of the merchandise. They're obsessed with their merchandise. They dream about it at night. Um, They always want more. Uh, They're extracting minerals from the earth and then melting them together in big factories and producing more merchandise. And this uh, obsession with merchandise will have no end. Um, You know, that's a pretty clear eyed gaze on the extractive industrial world. Um, So. But that said, I don't think that Amazonians understand everything about Europeans, just like Europeans surely don't understand everything about Amazonians. And um, But getting together and talking, getting to know each other, sharing. You know, yeah, I think that, for example, scientific verification, where good old, uh, getting several scientists to conduct the same experiment, testing it, trying to come up with sort of dependable protocols, uh, you know, putting a little bit of method into it, this could be something that could be constructive for ayahuasca therapeutic practices. I think that Westerners have a part of the puzzle, and Indigenous Amazonians have another part of the puzzle. And the the task at hand is to sit down together and think it over together and think about uh, what I don't know about the other side what I, I would like the other side to explain to me. It's, it's also about simply having the will to, to listen. I think that's one of the, the hard things for Western experts, is that listening is, is not uh, something they're good at. They're good at talking, they're good at explaining, they're good at doubting. But suspending disbelief and listening, um, you know, this is not part of uh, Western expertise. It actually is part of indigenous expertise, See, the the older the, the indigenous experts get, the more they listen. In fact, sometimes they even listen with their eyes closed. And, you know, Westerners think, oh, he's not even listening to me or he's, he's nodding off. But actually, in their culture, it means, no, I'm really listening. Because when you really listen, you close your eyes. Um, you know, so the two sides have different talents. And uh, it's not immediate to either side how to go about understanding each other. You know, just a last example, uh, in Canada, they're trying to get scientists and Indigenous experts to work together on questions like uh, the ecology of rivers, how to clean up rivers. Well, Indigenous Ojibwe people in Ontario, for example, they live on a given river. They're actually not that interested in rivers in general they're interested in the river they live on. They know it, they know what, uh, the place names, they know what fish live there, when they go through. They have great specific knowledge. They're kind of uninterested in universalized general knowledge about all the rivers in the world. Western scientists come from another direction. I mean, they're obsessed with universals and you know, true knowledge has to be about the, the whole thing. And that's not a crime. But it just means that these two kind of d- different approaches, when they actually meet and start talking about the health of the river, they have a hard time even getting on the same page sometimes because of that. So that's, the, um, that's where the work needs doing, is that not only does each side have to learn to listen to the other side, each side has got to learn about their own presuppositions about what they're bringing to the table.
0: Thank you, Jeremy. Jeremy's book is Plant Teachers, Ayahuasca, Tobacco, and the Pursuit of Knowledge. Uh, It's a good, slim volume that has a lot more questions than we had time to get to today. So we 're really grateful for your your time here and grateful for all of the work that you've been doing uh, as a teacher and especially as an activist um, for for these spaces this is something that you don't talk about so much in, in in your books but is definitely underlying it so a couple of questions we got in the chat just you know really briefly if people want to get involved beyond just learning and studying are there ways that they can contribute to activism or, or follow along your path and, and, and uh, help contribute in their ways and make making a difference.
2: Uh, Was that a question?
0: Yeah, very briefly. How would you recommend people get involved beyond buying a book?
2: You know, I think that there are uh, a million kind of like good causes. Uh, They can be close, they can be far. I spend my time, you know, looking after the Amazonian rainforest, which is 10,000 miles away from where I live, um, fundraising and so forth. But like just the fate of farm animals uh, down the road would be, uh, a valid cause, um, cultivating a garden, appreciating plants, teaching children about the importance of plants and other species and there's or you know women 's rights, minority rights there's diversity in the world is important and needs having a, a value put on it and this can be done a uh, hundred thousand different ways, and the most important thing is to use your own intelligence, in other words not try to be like somebody else but do what you really feel is important and needs doing because that's what's going to be your fuel uh because it's a, it's a long you know when you as an activist you kind of go against the grain and try to sort of change the way things are going so you got to go against the flow a little bit and it can be lonely you know so you need you need fuel you need will and so that's why you it helps to choose something that you really feel is uh, important and what that will be will really depend on on who you are.
0: Well, thank you for giving us all so much fuel today. We really appreciate you. Yeah, right. Jeremy, we,
1: we, we really appreciate your time. I know that we've kept you here longer than we promised, but uh, this has been the most fascinating conversation we've had in the salon this year. So I do appreciate your time. Thank you so oh. much.
2: Thank you, too, because the the questions were all good and I I just couldn't walk out on it. So uh, thank you.
1: (laughs) Well, we'll get this podcast uh, uh, early next week and I'll send you the link. But uh, everybody is is applauding, I see right now. So (laughs) you can't hear it. But uh, thank you so much, Jeremy. We really appreciate it.
2: Okay, Lorenzo, it was a pleasure. Charles, too. Thanks. Well,
1: uh, (laughs) since it's now Friday, I guess that my plan to get this out early in the week kind of fell through. But, uh, well, here we are at last. Now, before I go, I want to let you know that our guest next Monday night, November 1st, will be Dr. Robert Flannery. Robert is the first Ph.D. in the United States with certified technical expertise in growing commercial cannabis, and he is the CEO of Dr. Rob Farms. Additionally, Dr. Flannery is the co-author, along with Ed Rosenthal and Angela Baca, of the Cannabis Grower's Handbook. The Complete Guide to Marijuana and Hemp Cultivation. And I should also mention that uh, Robert is an old friend of our co-host, Charles. Now the following Monday, November 8th, our guest will be Nathan Cooper, who will be speaking about art, autism, and acid. And on November 15th, our topic will be Psychedelic Law for the People, with guest attorney Gary Smith and his associates. So I hope that you'll be able to sit in on some of these conversations, but if not, I'll eventually get them posted here in the online salon. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.